0: Ever since my first middle school drafting class, I've been a huge fan of designer and architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And there's a really great example of his work that's not too far from where I grew up. It's a house called Falling Water. Who, who's seen it or been there? Okay. Maybe you know it. So it was designed by Wright in 1935 and built in southwestern Pennsylvania, about 40 miles or so southeast of Pittsburgh, as a weekend home for the Kaufman family. Kaufman's, of course, are the folks that own Kaufman's department store in Pittsburgh. and It's an absolutely incredible place. It's listed on Smithsonian's list of 28 places to visit before you die. It's also named by the American Institute of Architects as, listen to this, the best all-time work of American architecture. That's a pretty big label. Now, if you've ever been there or if you've ever seen pictures of it, the home was built partly over a waterfall on Bear Run, in a section of the Laurel Highlands in the Allegheny Mountains. And the location of the place is, is really the key to its beauty. But it also created a huge problem, because the building site that was selected wasn't large enough to provide a foundation for the size of house that Wright normally built. And in addition to his original design, Mr. and Mrs. Kaufman requested some additions of their own, like they needed to have separate bedrooms. They needed to have an extra bedroom for their oldest son. They needed extra guest space so they could invite all these folks they wanted to come up there and see their house. And as the project started to, to continue to develop and to mushroom with all these changes and all these additions, finally a heated argument broke out between the architect, the owners, the contractor, and the on-site engineer. A heated argument. Because each of them believed that the other guys had miscalculated the reliability of the home's foundation. And of course, that's pretty important, Right? And the reason that they were so upset was because if you don't start with a really good foundation, it's kind of a waste of time to go any further with a building project, isn't it? Wouldn't make much sense. And in our lectionary reading for today, the Apostle Paul has that same message as he counsels the Corinthian church, now remember a church that he planted, to reclaim the foundation of their faith. And so remember, we're tracking through the lectionary, we're looking at Corinthians and This is what Paul writes. He says, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one, the one that we already have, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can see as we've been reading through this letter over the last several weeks that the Apostle Paul has used a lot of stories and comparisons when he's writing to the Corinthians. And in our passage today, he's using an illustration about construction work to help the congregation understand the basis of our faith and the work of ministry in the church. And he's encouraging the Corinthian believers and us, since we're kind of reading over their shoulder, remember, to be sure that we're building our lives on a solid foundation because The world outside those doors is a pretty scary place, isn't it? I mean, everywhere you look, whether it's in your own life or on television or the newspapers, there are people's lives who are falling into ruin. You don't have to look very far to see it. There are thousands and thousands of individuals and families that are headed for collapse. Relationships between people are crumbling. Government institutions are falling apart. And businesses that we once thought were too big to fail are crashing, right? And you ask yourself, why? Why is that? Why are are so many lives and so many things being ruined? And and as confusing and as upsetting as that seems and as it sounds, the truth is actually very simple. The answer is very simple. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. And it can be found in where the foundation of a life is placed. Where the foundation is placed. Is it placed in the self-referencing ideas of secular humanism, or is it placed in the wisdom of the Word of God. Because only one of those two is strong enough to support us when the waterfalls of life's issues start cascading down over us. And if we don't have a firm footing, we're going to lose the place where we stand. Prophet Isaiah wrote about that too in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, This is what he said. He said, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It's a precious cornerstone that's safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. And you see here, God is telling us that he and he alone defines what does and was, does not make a sure foundation and that that foundation would only be found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, his son. Found in his death on the cross. Found in his burial in a borrowed tomb in his resurrection from the dead, and finally found in his ascension into heaven where he sits down at the right hand of the Father to show that the work is complete, that the foundation is laid. And God wants us to know that it's one that's tested. It's a foundation that's approved. It's a foundation that is solid and it's unshakable and it's flawless. And that there can be no other building material on which you and I can safely build our lives. And that's the reason that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write that line that we read when he said, no one can lay any other foundation other than the one. That's the one we already have, Jesus Christ. And Paul has been kind of warming up to this subject in the last couple of weeks as we've read through the letter. Uh, when we read the section where Paul said he had given his church, the Corinthians, that spiritual milk, remember? In other words, he'd given them an introduction to the faith and to spiritual life he had started them out on the ground floor of christianity basically and he said just like babies have to be fed milk before they can eat solid food he had given them spiritual milk because they weren't ready for anything more substantial and he was telling them that they they should have been letting themselves be guided by the holy spirit but their minds were too preoccupied by earthly wants and their emotions were too plagued by negative thoughts and that they were never going to get it all straight until they got back on the firm footing with the truth of the word of God and his plan for the salvation of his people. And you know that truth, that plan of salvation, wasn't just some new religion that Paul was trying to launch, but it was the completion of a building project whose footers were laid in the writings of the Old Testament. We're seeing that really clearly in Sunday school class. If you guys are missing Sunday school class, you're missing some some good content because it's particularly seen in the Old Testament Torah reading assigned for this week in the Jewish synagogues that continues the story of Israelites' exodus from Egypt that we've been following along with, too. We're going to pick up that story in Exodus 19. Moses writes, "...exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, "...give these instructions to the family of Jacob." announce it to the descendants of Israel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me, keep my covenant, you'll be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain, called together the elders of the people, and told them everything the Lord commanded them. And all the people responded together, all that he speaks, we shall do. All that he speaks, we shall do. So Moses brought the people, they answered the people back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'll come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so that the people themselves can hear me when I speak to you. And then they'll always trust you. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and A dense cloud came down from the mountain. There was a long, loud blast of the ram's horn, and all the people trembled. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered in reply. And then God gave the people these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. Honor your father and mother, and then you'll live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God has given you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast from the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood in the distance and trembled with fear. And then they said to to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we'll die. And as the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. Can you imagine that scene? Can you picture that in your mind? So the book of, of Exodus tells us that God's people left Egypt immediately after that first Passover celebration. and They traveled for 44 days until the third new moon, and they set up camp opposite Mount Sinai, very near the place where Moses was originally commissioned by God to go get the people in the first place. Moses climbs the mountain, and the Lord commanded him to tell the people, if you will obey him and keep his covenant, he'll make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So Moses goes down and delivers the message to the the people, and they respond, saying, I want you to listen to this. Their response was, all that he speaks, we shall do. All that he speaks, we shall do. But if you were paying attention to the timeline of the reading, the people gave that reply without ever even hearing what the commandments were going to be. yet. Right? That takes some faith. I mean, would you ever sign a contract first and then have someone tell you the details later? Anybody here ever done that? I didn't think so. One commentator wrote on this, he said, the Jews standing at Mount Sinai signaled their acceptance of the Torah and promised... First, to observe the laws of God and only afterward to learn what these laws were going to contain. But in that moment, they had such faith and confidence in the reliability of God and the foundation of his words to them that they staked their whole future on whatever God had planned for them. I like that. We going to read that again. He said that they had such faith and confidence in the reliability of God and the foundation of his words to them that they staked their whole future on whatever God had planned for them. Amen. And the story goes on to tell how on the morning of the third day, the Lord thundered and, and then lightning and, and billowing smoke and fire and a mighty blast of the shofar horn, and then the Lord began reciting the spiritual and moral groundwork of his law, the Ten Commandments, so that all the Israelites could hear. And as soon as they hear the voice of God, they're terrified, and they start crying out to Moses, because they were convinced that they would literally die in the presence of this holy God. And as the people began to fall back in fear, what does Moses do? He goes forward. He goes ahead to be be their go-between, to be their mediator with God, and he stands between God and his people. And as he does, the Bible tells us in Exodus 20, And then the Lord said to Moses, Build for me an altar made of earth, and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered, and I will come to you and bless you. So now, given all these awe inspiring sights and, and sounds on the mountain when God gave the Israelites his law, it's not hard to see why they were scared, is it? I'd be terrified. And it wasn't just from the spectacle that was around them. It was because of the turmoil that was going on inside of them when they realized they would never be able to keep God's law. It was from the fear inside of them. But guess what? That didn't come as a surprise to God, did it? It wasn't the first time he'd ever had an encounter with humanity, was it? I mean, like, he didn't bring them all the way out to Sinai and, and say, like, uh, oh, I never thought about you guys breaking any of these laws. Well, now what am I going to do with you? No, this was just one more brick in the wall of God's plan to repair the perfect creation that humanity had already destroyed. And he was giving a preview, a picture of his elaborate blueprint to do that. Hebrews 10 talks about that. It says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing to those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers. The worshipers would have been purified once and for all, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. That didn't happen, did it? You know, when our first parents sinned in the garden, they voluntarily separated themselves from God by breaking the one and only commandment that he had given them. Just one. And so brought on themselves the penalty of of death, both physical and spiritual, right? The, The price of treason. But God in his mercy made a way for that broken fellowship to be restored. And he did it right then. Genesis 3.21 tells us, and the Lord made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. So watch this now when Adam and Eve sinned, God sacrificed one of his animals that he had just created to provide skin to make clothing for them. Not not just to cover their physical nakedness, but to symbolically cover their offense and their transgression against the sovereignty of God. And then when Adam and Eve had children, what happened? They passed on that sinful nature because what else could they do? Hung us all out to dry, right? You can't can't give something that you don't have, can you? You can't pass something on to your children that you don't have, and they no longer possessed either the innocence or the purity that they were created with. So their sons and daughters and every subsequent generation, right down to you and me standing here today, was born in sin. Cain and Abel were both aware of their sin. They both brought sacrifices to the Lord, but Cain's was unacceptable because he gave to God only what he wanted to give to God instead of what he knew God required. But his brother Abel's offering was accepted because it was a sacrifice from the firstborn of his flock. A little later, after the flood waters receded, Noah sacrificed from the few and precious animals that were left as an offering to God for the sins of himself and for his family. And in today's reading, God commanded the nation of Israel to Performed specific sacrifices according to exact procedures laid out by him so that the people could experience forgiveness. Because in the process of that animal sacrifice, the animal served as a substitute. It was a visceral reminder of the magnitude of our rebellion. You know, in other words, that animal died in the place of the sinner, where the sinner should have been, but only temporarily and only for those specific sins which is why the sacrifices needed to be offered over and over and over again as a placeholder, as a token, a symbol, a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, providing the forgiveness that animal sacrifices could only illustrate and serving as a sign to the Israelites and to us that true and lasting redemption was on the way. Not in the form of a great king or a mighty warrior, or a wise teacher, but in a personal Savior. A Personal Savior. One commentator said, when the Holy One spoke to the people of Israel at Sinai, each one of them felt personally spoken to by God. That's why the passage reads in the Hebrew singular tense, he says, I am the Eternal One, your God, who brought you, singular, personally, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery he continues it's noteworthy that god identified himself as he who delivered you from the land of egypt did you ever think about that passage it's really easy to just read right over it, because instead of identifying himself as the god that created heaven and earth or identifying himself as the the god that's a ruler of the stars and the sea or instead of saying he's the god and maker of mankind he identifies himself first and foremost as a savior as a Savior. He says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you. And he says that because the purpose of all creation is to demonstrate God's redemptive love and to know him as our Savior and our Redeemer. And that love is a really great lens to look at God's foundational commandments through, to look at the Ten Commandments through. One author summarized those commandments like this. I love the way he he writes this. He says, the Ten Commandments can be summarized as I am the Lord, your only deliverer, the one who loves you and chooses you. Love me exclusively. Regard my love as sacred. Rest in me. Honor your life and its history. Forsake anger. Abandon lust. Renounce greed. Abhor lying. And refuse to envy. That's beautiful, isn't it? And he's saying... Know that you belong to me and that I love you and then love other people the way that you've been loved. So creation then begins and ends with the redemptive love of God. That's the bedrock underneath. That's its base, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across to the Corinthians in talking about having Christ as our foundation. Remember that verse. Keep that in your mind this week. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. He's what holds it all together, right? In fact, he he told us that himself in Matthew. He said in Matthew chapter 5, don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the laws of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. To accomplish it. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the slightest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Until its work is done. Until the foundation was complete. And when did that happen? When did that happen? It happened in that dark moment on the cross when Jesus looked up and said, It is finished. As his sacrificial, substitutionary death pulled together all the elements of God's salvation blueprint, all of the Old Testament prophecies and symbols and foreshadowings in his completed work of redemption, so that we can, by faith, live as new creatures in Christ, resting on the solid rock of God's finished work in Jesus Christ. You know, the whole, whole time I was working on this message, I kept thinking of a, an old hymn, one that I know you guys are going to know as soon as I start reading it to you. It goes, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. In every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil, or abounding in wealth, at home and abroad, on land and on sea, as thy days may demand, shall thy strength ever be. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify thee, thy deepest distress. And it goes on in that vein until you get to the very last verse, which is my absolute favorite. It picks up by saying, the soul that on Jesus has learned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. You know, there's no question that the troubles and trials of of this world and of our lives are fiery and painful at times, right? There's no question that they make a real attempt to shake the underpinnings of our faith. But if we'll just lean on Jesus and learn from Jesus and trust in him as that hymn says, then even though all hell should endeavor to shake us, he will never No, never, no, never forsake us. And so as we close, I want to ask you, are you leaning on Jesus for that kind of support? Are you learning from him? Is his will and his work and and his word the solid anchor of your life? Do you have Jesus Christ as that firm foundation? And only you can answer that question. You You can fool me. You can try to fool yourself, but you're never going to fool God. And so I urge you, I ask you, lean on Jesus, learn from him, and then nothing, absolutely nothing, including hell itself, can shake you loose from our solid rock and his firm foundation. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask you to plant our feet firmly today on the solid rock of your work on the cross. Build into our lives today, Lord, the resilience and the patience and the faith that we need to walk through this world as you continue to work among us reinforce in us, Father, everyday sound doctrine and prayer and hunger for your word, and bring us, Father, to that heavenly home that you're preparing for us. Father, I know even now that you're reaching out and speaking to hearts that you're calling to the kingdom, and I ask, Lord, that you would open open eyes, that you would open hearts, that you would fill them with the power of your spirit, and your presence would be so real to each one of us, Lord, that we would reach out and say, yes, Father, we trust in your foundation. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.